Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Paris 21 podcast, Data for the People, the first one in this new year, 2021. I'm so excited to have with me Vincent Hendricks. Vincent is professor of formal philosophy, and he's also the director of the Center for Information and Bubble Studies based in Copenhagen. Thanks so much for joining us, Vincent. Thank you for having me. Vincent, can I kick off uh, with, a, with a simple question? How does one become professor of formal philosophy? Well, I mean, in fear that you want the entire academic story, I'll give you the, uh, <laughs> give you the short run of that. Well, basically, I'm a logician uh, or a theoretical computer scientist, if you want. But I am employed at a philosophy department because I'm also, as I said, interested in logic. And once you're interested in logic, you're also interested in information proliferation, network structures, etc. So from that perspective, formal philosophy just means anywhere where the, where the methods of math or stats uh, will apply to uh, philosophical problems, including information proliferation, fake news misinformation, take your favorite pictures. Very interesting. Now, would you mind to say a bit more about this center that you are heading, the Center for Information and Bubble Studies? What does it actually mean? The basic idea is that, as Herbert Simon said back in 1971, if in an information-rich world, you're going to find a scarcity of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is that information consumes. But what information consumes is pretty obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. And there you have it. Basically, there are not bubbles. When we think of bubbles, we usually think of situations in finance where assets will trade at prices far exceeding their fundamental value. But since, the, but since the, the utmost asset in the information age is not microchips or oil immediately, it's people's attention as an asset, then basically you can speculate in what sort of information people are willing to spend their attention on, independently of whether that information is true or false. And so from that very perspective, you can see you can generate attention bubbles in much the same way that you can create asset bubbles whether you would be thinking of monetary bubble that we find them in finance. So basically what we are studying is the structure and dynamics of an environment which is bubble hospitable for attention, bubbles, and also socio-psychological phenomena that will actually are playing a rather big part in the way in which these uh, various, various attention bubbles were put together, uh, whether or not we're talking conspiracy theory on one end or, or people trending on this, buying the same balance chart or bag on the other. Um, so basically, social influence studies is a very big part of it. First, to understand the structure and, and, and dynamics of these phenomena, including Twitter storms, and then eventually to see what sort of tricks what sort of uh, policy recommendations, what sort of things will actually bar some of these unfortunate attention bubbles to, to happen and emerge. We met last time in person in Bern, where we had the Paris 21 annual meeting and you gave a keynote lecture. And we had some conversations about attention and, and very few people get a lot of attention. Now, two or three years later, we have the COVID. What does it mean for you, the whole COVID story? Well, the COVID story is another systematic shock to our information environment, as well as it, of course, is also a medical problem and a political problem and a financial problem. It's certainly also a shock to our information environment or our information market. As you may know, I mean, the EU has basically put out a task force to make sure that not too much fake news and misinformation and conspiracy theory is called the EU versus disinfo.eu. 
I'm afraid to say that that uh, in the long trajectory of when the when the center started or we started to talk to us, this is basically just another proof by case in terms of misinformation, fake news, etc. In terms of this proliferation of fake news and alternative re realities, I mean, of course, we are coming from the part of society that looks at um, statistics and data and quality data. And for many in our communities, uh, COVID at least has helped to put data and statistics at the forefront. On the other hand, though, um, we also see that people get more and more to some extent confused because they realize there is not one data, there's not two data points, there are very different data points. How do you make sense of this in terms of this, some say even infodemia, I mean, too much information, even on the data and statistical side, and what can be done about it? Well, that's a very good question. I, 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 I agree to the coining of that term too, an infodemic. Uh, when the COVID would start, when the COVID started, and all these also misinformation and fake news start to proliferate together with reliable information. Now, the problem, of course, with information is that we have information in abundance now. So, what sort of information should you trust, and what information should you not trust? What sort of sources should you trust, and what sort of information should you not trust? In a certain sense, we all, the basic idea was always that information and statistical material, et cetera, should enlighten us and qualify our base of decision. But if there's too much of it, we tend just to get lost in the abundance and in the overload. And then what we do is what we do as human beings, either we just discard the entire business or we go back to our preconceived ideas and then we bolster those uh, with whatever data that will support that. That's called confirmation bias, right? These social psychological phenomena are also living and breathing well in times where, in a certain sense, without stats now for the COVID, we would be in a much worse off place than if we did not have the stats. What we can observe in many countries now that the views of experts are not taken uh, by all members of society as seriously or they are questioned, they are not necessarily trusted. And then there are some people who are quite influential who people just trust more, which can really undermine, and we have seen this also in the Brexit debate, the famous quote, I don't care about expert views. I don't, just don't care about it. So how do you make sense of this, that even in today's world, with all the knowledge, with all the experts, we have good experiences, we have quality data, we seem sometimes to lose the war of truthful information? I mean, in, in polarized opinion markets, the truth has a very hard time. And for obvious reasons, because the truth will be, will be considered a partisan. If the, if the truth or the numbers are with you, you will use it. If you're against you, you will say it's either fake news or misinformation. Or if you're a little more radical than that, then you would basically say, well, that only goes to show that there is a conspiracy against us. And that, of course, is a major issue. We have seen it in many different scenarios that once you, you, you get to these extremely polarized communities, then basically truth does not matter and positive or negative evidence collapse into evidence. What can we do? I was talking recently to um, a colleague who is, uh, works with Gavi. One of his suggestions was for those people who work on providing data and statistics, they should basically align with other people who have the knowledge to help them to get their messages out. 
if you are a national statistical office head, it would be better to build alliances with those institutions that can help you to relate and connect to these people. What is a good strategy for those of us, uh, for those, for the community who puts out data, who puts out evidence, papers, um, how can they still try to connect with reasonable people in polarized societies? I think it's fair to, it's fair to say that even statisticians live in, a, live in an attention economy. And so we, that was part of the argument that you and I were making in that paper that we referred to about hiring a comedian. And the reason why hiring a comedian was, it was also a little bit political, but the, but the point was, if you want to get your message across, make sure that you don't feed it directly to people's preconceived ideas in these polarized opinion markets, because then you're not going to get through. But one way into people's minds is also to get them to laugh a little bit, even if they disagree. So that was our argument. I think your colleague there has a very important point to be made, namely, and which is also faring extremely well with the ambition of the United Nations uh, 17 sustainability goals. Namely, remember, and people tend to forget, I think the most visionary goal of all the goals is the 17th goal. And the 17th goal is called new partnerships. The only way you're going to do that is for people from various different branches to cooperate. And we have seen bits and parts of this also during the COVID. As I was referring to before, the WHO, the WHO hooked up with Facebook um, to, to provide a campaign for which a lot of the misinformation that was peddled on Facebook pertained to COVID, pertained to conspiracy, and all those things, misinformation in that regard, was actually something that they could address together. And I think it's fair to say that we're going to have to see a lot more of these new partnerships between, say, the social media platforms on one hand and statistical offices on the other, between states and organs of different kinds, including the UN, the EU, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to work together to make sure that there is an infrastructure, because that's really what you want to provide, an infrastructure that you can reach everybody. The EU versus Disinfo is another initiative along those lines. And we are probably in the future going to see more and more and more of this. Have you seen any good examples in countries, in maybe in your own country, in Denmark or somewhere, where these partnerships have helped to build a common ground of trust, where then um, data and, and quality data can flourish? How we can bridge quality information to the citizens? Look at here, the problem about trust, and I, I think you're putting the hammer on the nail here. When the problem with trust is, as we're talking about, we have a long experience for it, it's very, it doesn't take much to take it down, but it takes a lot to build up, right? And, and we, we must realize one thing about the COVID crisis. It's a year now, ladies and gentlemen. It's not five years, although it's not, it seems like 10, but this was last year. So, so we should realize that this is on a very short time horizon. Now, the world doesn't find itself a new equilibrium within uh, two weeks. Um, pertaining to your second question as to success stories, well, these are still early times still, and we are still trying to proliferate the right kind of information. But if I should take Denmark as an example, I think it's fair to say that the established media, the mainstream media, have been working in close unison, in close concert with uh, everything from the Danish statistical offices, trying to be very careful the kind of information that was peddled through the, uh, the channels. So, so there is at least a small example. But look, Denmark is manageable. We have 5 million people here. So this is an easy run. We are a rich nation. 
We are extremely data digitalized here, so we are easily manageable and to, and to enforce trust. It's very different from the U.S. It's very different from many, many countries around the world. It's going to depend on the kind of population that you have, how, how big it is, how digitalized the community is, et cetera, et cetera. As you said, I mean, it's a bit of an ambiguous trend. On the one hand, there's a hunger for quality information. On the other hand, we see a proliferation of conspiracy theories looking ahead three to five years. Where do you see will we be going with all this? You're going to see a change in the way in which the social media uh, will be actors in the information market. One of the things that we even talked about a couple of years ago, Johannes, was the fact that they were basically just providing bandwidth. They couldn't care less about what's on their platforms. And that's been, they've been lobbying for that for so long. Basically, they have taken on an editorial responsibility. I think we will see more of that, either because they are afraid of regulation or because they're going to take their responsibility seriously. I don't care about my motive, their motive, but I think we're going to see more of that. We will also, however, see pockets of social unrest and upheaval. It's going to be inevitable. And so we're going to see social unrest and upheaval. We're going to see conspiracy theory peddled. We're going to see new platforms for that, including dark waves and torrents. But I also think it's fair to say that what I hope for, and this is more of a hope than a fact, is that we have learned, we have learned something. We have learned that, you can, that without science, we are not going to be able to solve systemic problems like COVID. And I have to remind you, of course, and I don't have to remind you, but we have to realize that we have more than one systemic problem running at a time. We have COVID, but before we turned our attention on COVID, we still had misinformation on the web as a global challenge. We still had migration, climate problems, universal health, uh, inequality, et cetera. And they have not gone on vacation or have been on sick leave just because we had COVID. So what I'm hoping for is that we can actually see that some of the experiences that we have had during COVID are some that we can actually transmute, that we're going to need to solve the other problems ahead, because we're not going to run out of systemic problems anytime soon. And we are going to need all the wits and all the data, all the stats and all the coordination to, to make sure that we have this sort of trust that you asked for before um, in order to coordinate properly and build proper societies point blank. Thank you for pointing out that data and statistics can make a useful contribution to addressing those problems. So thank you so much, Winston. It was nice talking to you as always. Thank you for having me. Casuva, primeiro, não se esqueça em fevereiro. Apareça para dar um alô e contar as novidades. Vem mostrar seu valor.